Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Well, welcome to this 83rd episode of All Things. I am joined by my friend and colleague, Hannah Nation, and I'm going to just go ahead and ask her to introduce herself so that you listeners will be aware of who she is. This is going to be, I think, a really interesting and probably stretching episode of All Things, and I'm looking forward to it. So let's start by hearing your story, Hannah. You are co-editor of a book Mm -hmm. entitled Faith in the Wilderness, a brand new book, Faith in the Wilderness, Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church. So tell us, what is your background with the church in China and how are you now involved from the United States? Yeah, thanks. Um, So I first went to China um, while I was a college student um, a long time ago. (laughs) Um, and it was a very different China, um, almost 20 years ago now, but I went and I taught English and, um, it was a truly, um, life changing experience for me. Um, I had gone on more or more or less a whim. I wanted to see the great wall. (laughs) It was a very holy reason, (laughs) um, But, um, yeah, I went with a group of Christians teaching English in a high school setting. And, um, you know, I, I had had very little contact with Asia, um, before that. And it was just mind blowing to see and experience this, um, very old, very significant and very large culture, um, So I um, had this life-changing experience and then came back to the U.S. and was like, well, that was nice. I'm done with that. (laughs) But I feel like over the next um, several years, the Lord just really kept calling me back. And I've ended up um, serving China my entire adult life. Um, I spent time in China working in campus ministry. Um, I lived in China for a couple of years. And then um, after that, when I came back to the U.S., I served Chinese international students in the U.S. for many years. Um, And about 10 years ago, I started to feel like the Lord was calling me out of campus ministry and into something new and um, went to seminary and really felt like um, I, I've i always loved to write. I've always had um, uh, giftings in that area and, and felt like the Lord was calling me to use those. And simultaneous to that, um, one of my former teammates from China um, works for an organization called China Partnership. And um, they wanted to start sharing the writings and preaching of pastors that they serve within China. They wanted to share that with the global church. So they recruited me and I transitioned out of campus ministry into what I do now, essentially, which is um, working to... um, 
facilitate translation and publication of works by Chinese house church pastors. So I am the content director for China Partnership, and I'm the managing director of a newer initiative called the Center for House Church Theology. Um, and that's the center is um, what is behind this book and where the book is coming from. So, yeah, so I, I feel like I, I never thought that China w- was where the Lord was calling me um, long term. <laughs> But here I am, and um, 20 years in, recognizing that this is what the Lord has called me to, and and um, seeking to be faithful in it. So, yeah, I love your journey because it is very much outside the box. Yes, um, I think I think a lot of people can relate to that story of well, I went on a trip. And it was life changing. Mm-hmm. And then I came back and didn't necessarily do something with it, but but then maybe something did come up, and we just never fully know where God yeah. is moving and what He's doing. Um, and your story really captures that. And I also love that you know you feel you have felt called to China full time, and you have been devoted to that. But that hasn't necessarily meant relocating or mm-hmm. living in China full time. And so you have found these very creative outside the box sort of ways of serving the global church and the church in China from here in the United States. And God is so creative and our callings are so diverse and you're, you show us that. Yeah. Well, and I think we're also, um, you know, the, the world of missions is, is changing and adapting as global churches are, are growing and maturing. And so I very firmly believe in the continued call to missional churches and missional engagement. But I also really believe that it's a good time for us to be exploring um, additional ways for us to live out that missional reality of the church um, beyond what we've seen for the last 200 years with um, people relocating and living in overseas. So um, yeah, I think there's it's a an amazing time in the history of the global church to further connections between those churches and um, to seek out creative ways that use a lot of the digital and technological developments we've had in recent years to really increase our fellowship with one another. Yeah, and and elevating, capturing, and elevating the voices mm-hmm. of pastors in China is going to be so edifying for the global church. I hope so. So uh, it will be. Well, I can say that after reading (laughs) Faith in the Wilderness, I felt extremely exhorted, convicted, excited, encouraged. I mean, it's a very robust book as I read the messages of these pastors um, in house, you know, house churches throughout China, their messages were so Um, beautiful and hard. So we'll get into that in a minute. But before we get ahead of ourselves, Hannah, could you tell a a listener who's only vaguely familiar Mm -hmm. with the socio-political situation in China um, and how the politics and the government affects religious practices in China, can you give us just a brief introduction of what life is like for Christians right now in 2022 in China and also how things kind of got to where they are today? Yeah. That's a dangerous question. I was a history major, um, okay. so it's gonna. I, I'm going to work very hard to be succinct. <laughs> um, 
So, I mean, I think most people would be aware that um, China remains one of the the few continuing communist countries um, in our world today. Um, I think that it's a very complicated situation. Um, I think it's not necessarily um, the same communism that um, we would have been familiar with at the height of the Cold War, for example. Um, but there is still, um, it is still essentially an authoritarian, um, totalitarian system. The communist, uh, Chinese Communist Party remains in power and they exercise significant power um, over China as a country. So um, as a Christian within China, I would say, you know, the, the communists um, gained power in the middle of the last century. So um, 1949, 1950, um, they, the, the um, interaction between the party and the government and the church has really ebb and flowed over um, the last, you know, we're getting close to a hundred years, but um, so there has not been the same level of conflict or persecution throughout the entire history. Um, And I think that's important to note because um, it, it impacts a lot of the ways that Chinese think about, um, their government, Chinese Christians think about their government, um, how they think about themselves. And it's also really impacted the growth of the church. So um, when the communists came to power, um, they essentially formed a state church and asked all Christians to um, enter into the the state church. Um, At that time, about half of the Christian population of China did enter the state church and half refused to do so. And the half that refused to birthed what we call the house church movement in China. And these are essentially unregistered churches um, who, you know, refuse to register with the state. Um, for much of their history throughout the 20th century, they were what we think of when we think of maybe a house church, kind of very small, very secret, um, con- contained within a private home. Um, so that would be the history. There was a, a period um, probably roughly through from the 90s through pretty recently, about 2018, um, where there was a lot more flexibility and a lot more freedom for house churches. Um, and many of these house churches grew to the extent um, that in major cities, you, we, you could find churches with over 500 people attending um, on a Sunday. There were a few churches in the country that were even larger than that. Um, they rented commercial buildings or met in hotel ballrooms. These churches looked and felt very similar to churches you might encounter in the U.S. Um, by that point, Christianity had grown significantly in China. 
the conservative estimate is that there are um, 70 to um, 80 million Christians in China. Um, more bold estimates put it well above 100 million Christians. It's very hard to get an accurate number, but it's a large population at this point. Um, in 2018, the government put in new religious regulations, and, and these regulations really um, were focused on limiting <laughs> the ability of these churches to, to meet openly um, and in these kind of more visible spaces. A lot of the interest of these regulations, I think, was to um, try to force a lot of the house churches back into um, the state church system. So I would say for your average Christian in China, um, persecution is is not necessarily a reality. Um, I would say marginalization is more of a reality or even harassment. Um, but if you are a pastor, um, you've definitely encountered persecution more significantly. Um, I don't know personally any house church pastor who hasn't probably spent around at least 24 hours um, at his local precinct in, in some kind of custody. Um, it's, you know, they don't tend to make a really big deal <laughs> of these kinds of circumstances. Um, but um, it's something they're very familiar with. It's, it's a big part of what being a pastor um, in China entails. So I think um, topic, the, just the topic of suffering um, with Christ, the topic of suffering for Christ is something that Chinese Christians are just very, very familiar with and very comfortable with. Um, I would say suffering generally is a topic that Chinese are very familiar with. Um, China continues to have a lot of struggles and um, just a lot of, there's, um, it's a, a country with a lot of struggles. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, and so even though they, there has been a significant development of the country and rise in wealth levels, um, there's still a lot of suffering in the country. And so, um, even apart from persecution of Christians, suffering is a topic that is a, a pretty common topic. Um, yeah. yeah, I'll pause there. Okay. Um, I just, I'm marveling as you're talking, thinking of a hundred different rabbit trails I would love to go <laughs> yeah. down. Um, you know, my, we planted a church here in Colorado five years ago. So just thinking of my husband as a, a pastor of a church here, mm -hmm. spending 24 hours in our local police station, yeah. I cannot fathom that. I cannot fathom that. You know, um, even though Colorado is hugely secular, very atheist and, you know, relative to the rest of the United States, um, it's, it's still a relatively respected yeah. position yeah. to be a pastor. Um, so yeah. I can't imagine the, you know, maybe, maybe mocked sometimes by academics or in really corporate settings or something, but you know, as you said, harassment and marginalization is not our norm no. by any means. Yeah. And we do have a lot to learn. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, 
whatever pressures we might feel culturally here, they still really pale in comparison mm-hmm. to um, what our brothers and sisters in China deal with. And I think even then, you know, they, I they themselves say, well, what we experience here pales in comparison to what our brothers mm. and sisters in the Middle East experience. And mm. so, you know, in terms of pressure f- for being a Christian, we are not anywhere close <laughs> to right. what many of our brothers and sisters around the world experience. So. Yeah, yeah. Goodness. I want to dive into the book and the messages of these pastors that are in there, but it would be such a fascinating separate conversation to talk about the church and politics in the United States yes, <laughs> and just how you've been processing all of that over the last several years. Um, but like I said, we're going to stick to the script and we're going to stick to the book before I say anything that I have not preconsidered. Yep. That's wise. <laughs> yes. So this book, Faith in the Wilderness, is a collection of wisdom preached by Chinese house church leaders. And the messages from what I read in the book, they were live streamed to the public. Now that that's a big deal that we need you to tell us more about that. So what, what were those meetings? Why did they begin in the first place? Mm. And then why was it risky for those to take place? And also the fruit yeah. that was born from these meetings and these messages. Yeah. So um, this book was was born out of really, it really goes back to the beginning of the COVID pandemic. So um, at the beginning of 2020, there was a Christian conference that took place in Malaysia. And um, there was a significant presence at the conference from uh, Chinese house churches across China. And um, I, I was at that conference and was involved with a lot of these conversations. But essentially, um, shortly before the conference began um, was the week that um, the Wuhan lockdown took place. And um, as you can imagine, it was a very chaotic and pretty scary time for a lot of people. Um, No one could have anticipated where it all was going. But at the time, the conference leadership was having to make a lot of decisions essentially about um, what would happen uh, with Chinese uh, planning to leave China and and come and attend this conference. And they... um, eventually decided that they would essentially follow the decisions um, that the Chinese government was making. And so for every city that was locked down, um, attendees from that that location were asked not to attend um, the conference. Um, But simultaneous to that, they decided to go ahead and live stream this conference um, into China, which was an unprecedented decision, really. Um, they Nothing like that had really happened before. And the result was that um, there were tens of thousands of device logins um, across China watching um, the speakers. When the conference ended, um, 
there were lots of people headed back into China. And it was a very sober time for them um, heading back. And um, groups of people were deciding, okay, we're going to go ahead and and we want to continue live streaming evangelistic messages um, for the Chinese population. Um, I think there was a very strong sense that a pandemic was um, a time for the church to really lean into evangelism and not to shy away from whatever risks that might incur. And so um, they started hosting um, these, they're kind they were kind of like, um, old school evangelistic tent meetings, maybe you could kind of call them, but in the digital space. Um, mm-hmm. and so they would have these like, um, weekend long preaching events and they would, um, just send the link out to, you know, whoever, um, wanted to, um, join. They didn't really, um, you know, they kind of just shared the link on social media, other ways. Um, but yeah, so they, um, would preach these sermons and, um, the risks, I mean, China, the internet in China is heavily monitored and, um, it's not, um, anonymous by any means. Um, so for these pastors to very openly and very publicly preach and, um, they would show their faces as well. They didn't, um, hide their faces or use fake names or anything. Um, it was a significant choice on their part. Um, their motto throughout all of that was they wanted to let the light shine in the darkness. That was, kind of the, the motto that they chose for themselves. And really, um, we heard that phrase repeated a lot through 2020 as they made these decisions. But yeah, the fruit has, you know, it's it's hard to really accurately numerically um, know what the fruit is, but we do know um, it's, it's in the tens of thousands, um, the number of device logins, not even individuals. Um, most of these devices would have had probably whole families sitting around listening. Um, Chinese tend to live in more multi-generational homes than we do. Um, and Chinese families, you know, usually there's there are both Christians and those who aren't yet believers within a single family. And so these sermons were really intentionally preached both as evangelistic sermons and also as words of encouragement to those within the faith already, Um, which I think is one of the most Chinese things about them. Um, I think in the U.S. we tend to kind of separate in our minds evangelism and discipleship, and we really um, aren't always equipped to hold those two things together. Um, Mm -hmm. But the Chinese are much more comfortable with that because it's just so rare to have a whole family of believers. And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. the lines between, um, like if you're speaking publicly like this, 
you have to assume in your audience there are going to be both believers and and non-believers. Yeah. Well, that probably accounts for partly why the book feels so robust and so encouraging and convicting and motivating, you know, all those things um, is because they're holding those two things in the same hand. Yeah. I think it's interesting. It's always interesting looking at the material because half the time it's very clear that they're speaking to those who believe and they're saying, mm-hmm. keep going, <laughs> persevere. Mm-hmm. Right. Half the right. time they're speaking to those who don't believe. And so it can be very, um, very convicting, you know? And I think that, you know, it's such an interest, it's just such an interesting blend <laughs> of those, right. those two perspectives um, or those two audiences. So well, the evangelism is mingled with, as you just said, that message of perseverance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a unique message, at least from where we're sitting. Yeah. The evangelism is not necessarily um, rooted in like, you know, salvation from hell mm-hmm. necessarily, mm-hmm. or your best life now, mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life, but it's more rooted in here's what's true. God is sovereign. Mm-hmm. And salvation awaits, you know, but it's going to be a hard call. Yeah. Um, and, there, and perseverance will be required. Yeah. And I, I actually was talking with someone recently about how I feel like it's really interesting to think about how, you know, kind of the common, the common, uh, the meeting point that they find between these, these two different audiences is our common experience of suffering. You know, and I think that's an interesting place to think about beginning evangelism because all people suffer, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. whether we are um, walking with the Lord or not, we all experience um, the fallenness of this world and we all experience suffering. And so I think that they, one reason that they, they do a good job connecting those two audiences is because um there's that we all have that in common (laughs) it's not something that only people um inside or outside the faith experience and Mm -hmm. so it's a something Mm -hmm. that we actually can relate to those who don't believe on you know um and and but we have an answer for it (laughs) and we have a hope in it so yeah Yeah. Now suffering, you know, that is just something that we in the West, in the United States, especially we want to avoid at all costs. And I I count myself in that camp. I do not like to suffer. I am quick to flee a situation that causes me hardship. Yeah. Um, But from what I read in the book and these messages of these pastors, it it is a call to suffer. Mm -hmm. And so the message of the book felt different in that way, Mm -hmm. um, that it was a call to suffer, but it was also a call to great joy. Mm -hmm. You know, those things Mm -hmm. being Mm -hmm. one and the same Mm -hmm. in the Christian life. Um, You wrote the introduction to the book and you say there to avoid walking the way of the cross is to avoid Christ himself. Can you unpack that for us American Christians? What are you saying? Yeah. Um, Well, I think you've, I mean, you've, said it so well, we are allergic to suffering in the U.S. And I think we don't know how to suffer. We don't know 
how to think about it. And I mean, like you, I'm talking about myself personally. I'm, I'm not <laughs> pointing the finger at um, anyone else in the U.S. that does not include myself. So um, I think, you know, I, um, I have heard my Chinese brothers and sisters for years now talk about how the call to walk with Christ is a call to suffer. And it has, it, it used to make me really, really bristle. Um, it made me just, I would just have this like reaction of, no, <laughs> that's bad. Um, I don't want that. And, and I don't think that's wrong. I mean, I, I don't think that um, we are called to want suffering. You know, I don't think we're called to go back to kind of a monastic, um, intentional seeking out of suffering necessarily. But I think um, that what my Chinese brothers and sisters have just pointed me to is that we are united to Christ. Um, that is part of what we receive in our salvation is a union with Christ and Christ himself is the suffering savior. He has been, um, you know, resurrected and ascended and he reigns in glory, but, um, on earth, he was a man who suffered deeply in many ways. And, one of um, the sisters in China that um, we've um, published a good bit um, in other avenues, she talks about how the students are not above the teacher or um, the servant is not above the master. And if our Lord suffered and was a suffering savior, and if we are united to him, then we need to have a better understanding of what it means to carry our cross. I mean, Jesus pointedly says that following him involves carrying his cross. And, um, you know, even um, later in the New Testament, you know, Paul um, talks about how, you know, in our union with Christ, we are united to his death and his resurrection. And I think that a lot of American Christians, we like to focus on the resurrection, which isn't bad. It is our hope, but it feels like we've struggled to remember that um, death feels like death. <laughs> and that um, while we await heaven, um, we are united to um Jesus who who suffered greatly on this on this earth. And so one of them, I think one of the most um, kind of puzzling and mysterious verses that I've pondered a lot on in the last couple of years um, working on this content is um, Colossians 1:24, where Paul talks about, um, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And, and I confess, I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I have like the great one line answer on what that means. But I think watching my 
brothers and sisters in China and listening to what they are saying and teaching, it does make me think like, this is not a verse that I hear talked about a lot in the U.S. And um, it should give us like pause, you know, to think that like somehow like our call in this life is to fill up um, Christ's afflictions (laughs) that Mm -hmm. aren't finished yet somehow, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think, um, you know, if, you know, I think one of the, the mysteries of the gospel and the mysteries of knowing Christ is that, you know, you, it's like you, you can fall off one side of the horse or the other, right? We can, we can overfocus on his suffering and we can, um, get too caught up in that. And I would definitely look at the history of the church and say there are times in that, that that has happened. Um, but we can also fall off the other side and we can um, struggle to live in the reality of this world um, and struggle to see what it means to suffer with Christ. Um, and, and we need, I think in America, we, we need that check. <laughs> we need mm-hmm. to be reminded um, that walking with Christ is not always comfortable, you know, that, that we, um, yeah, bearing a cross is bearing a cross, you know, so. Sure, sure. Yeah, it is admittedly so easy to stray from that truth. Yes, yeah. We live in a comfortable, secure, safe, and healthy time in in the span of history. Yeah. And so it is indeed easy to stray from that truth. And that's one thing I really value about the book is that it brings us back to what is true yeah. and just the goodness of who our God is and that so much of our sanctification and our growth and our joy does come from suffering. And so I just appreciate the messages that have been translated and shared with us to point us to that. Yeah. Well, and let me, um, Oh, oh go ahead. I was just going to say, I, and I, I want to say this too. I think, um, one of the things that I really appreciated working on the content for this book was that it's when we talk about suffering, it's not just talking about persecution, you know, that mm-hmm. carrying mm-hmm. the cross is not just about persecution, that, Um, it is a very, there are many forms of suffering that people encounter in this world. Cause I think when I first heard my brothers and sisters in China talking about, um, how to know Christ is to know his sufferings, it always felt like, well, I'm not persecuted. (laughs) So, you know, am I doing something wrong? (laughs) Um, but I think in this book, it actually, it does talk about persecution, but it talks about a lot of other experiences mm-hmm. of suffering that these pastors have experienced. And it's a very um, well-rounded representation of hope in many forms of suffering, not just persecution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really true. We tend to go straight there, yeah. don't we? To imprisonment, um, persecution, even death or martyrdom. Yeah. But there are other ways of suffering. There are other costs yes. that can be paid yeah. um, that we should be eager and willing to lay down yeah. in order to be identified with our Christ, who is a suffering servant and suffering savior. Yeah. 
Um, okay, we just have a couple minutes left, but I want to touch on one thing. And then I want to close by asking you, you know, what you really want the American church to take away from the book. Sure. So leave time for that answer. Okay. And I know that it's just, this question's going to, the answer is not going to be that satisfying because it's a huge question. <laughs> and I'm going to point, I'm going to point listeners to the show notes where I want them to read an article that you recently published sure. um, about the American church and Chinese church and just a, a difference that you've seen. So let me read a quote from that article and listeners, I, I really want to urge you to go read the whole article, but Hannah, give us just a glimpse into what you were saying when you wrote this, you said, I've spent my entire adult life watching the evangelical church in both the U S and China. And one prominent difference overshadows all others in my mind the practice of repentance. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm trying not to get choked up <laughs> actually. So this is mm. really, um, this is becoming more and more, I think just one of the ways in which watching the Chinese church has just blessed me personally. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, I feel like watch I I am I have been working with translated content from China for um, eight years, and every year things come across my desk, in which um, pastors or ministry leaders are talking about things that they're repenting for. And it just blows my, like every time I read this stuff, it just blows my mind because I think I also should like preface that like Chinese, this is not natural to Chinese culture. Mm -hmm. Like this is mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. like, oh, like Chinese men are just out there like freely repenting of things all the time. Like this is like nothing else produces that in Chinese culture except for the gospel and the Holy Spirit at work. And just like the testimonies that like there were, there just are like more even than I could have included in that article. But like, there are so many testimonies of pastors and churches taking this posture of repentance for things like self-righteousness or anger or failing to serve the poor and the needy in their cities. And I think um, it it's rooted in exactly this, this growing theology in these house churches of their union with Christ and the fact that like mm -hmm. they aren't above Christ. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. He is their master and they are not above him, you know? And an an understanding of grace, you know, I think you can only repent when you really have a deep understanding of God's grace and what that means in your life. And um, so I think, you know, I feel like it has been really um, both sorrowful, but also encouraging over like the just the recent years watching just so many of the fights and the debates that have been consuming the American church. And um, I don't want to get too much into all of that because it can just be complicated and not always even helpful. But I do think that I have noticed that we're just very slow to repent in America and we're very slow to 
lay aside our kind of sense of dignity and our sense of um, probably just Mm (laughs) self-preservation and like Mm -hmm. throw ourselves into the reality that like we have as much to repent of as, as anyone else, you know, and as much as we can look at our surrounding culture and, and see legitimate things that should be repented of, like, we also have a lot of repenting to do. No one doesn't have Mm -hmm. repenting to do. Martin Luther Mm -hmm. said all of life was repentance, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. we just, I, I love how much I see so many Chinese pastors living into that. Yeah, that is so powerful. And there are stories in the messages in the book where the pastors are repenting in their message. And that was very encouraging for me to read. I love the phrase that you just used, Hannah, of um, being quick to lay aside our dignity, Mm -hmm. to just be willing to be humbled Mm -hmm. and um, to be embarrassed and just to claim what's true. And that is that we do fall short, but God's grace is enough. And so I think we need that more in the pulpit, more in the pews, more amongst all of us. Um, and again, for you who are listening, please read the article because Hannah also touches on something in the article that I think is really compelling, really interesting, and also something that can be somewhat of a powder keg in American church. And that is corporate repentance. Yes. Um, but I, I'm personally a fan of corporate repentance and want to encourage my listeners to go read the article. Okay. So one, um, one more last question, sort of rapid fire answer what do you want the American church? Maybe three things, a list of three. What three things do you want the American church to learn from the Chinese church? Three things. Um, okay. Three things would be, um, first off, that um, you do not have to have cultural power for evangelistic success or the growth of the church. Mm. I mean, this is Mm. a church with absolute no power. They are completely disenfranchised in their society. And over the last 80 years, there's been a 60-fold growth of Christians in their country, you know. So I think – I don't think we have to want persecution in the U.S., but I think we do have to understand that nothing stops God's work when he wants to work, and um, we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be afraid. Um, Second thing would just be that um, Christ is with you in your suffering, that Yeah, I mean, this book just, every page of it is talking about how Christ is with you in your suffering, you know, whether that is something like persecution, whether that is something like the loss of a child, whether that is something like just struggling with your own sin, um, Christ is very, very near you in all of that. You're united to him and he's, Mm -hmm. he is present with you in those things. Amen. Um, And I think the last thing would just be, I think this isn't as explicitly discussed in the book, but it just undergirds everything. It's just the centrality of prayer. I mean, this is a church that prays. They Mm. are just, they are, 
prayer is embedded into the life of the Chinese church in a way that it's not in the American church. And um, I, I think that that, I mean, that could be a whole nother episode. We could just talk about their prayer, sure. prayer habits mm-hmm. and how much I really mm-hmm. think like that is what undergirds everything that they do and why they are the way they are. So. Wow. That is good. Those three are powerful and we could go on about all of them. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for at least helping us to get a glimpse, um, you know, just at the tip of the iceberg. Um, and of course the book is really powerful. I encourage everybody to grab a copy. I will have links in the show notes for Faith in the Wilderness, Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church, edited by Hannah Nation. And Hannah, um, what is the name of the other editor? I know that you're a co-editor. Yeah, um, my co-editor, um, his name is Simon Leo. And um, he is he was the um, man who basically planned and took care of all of the, the preaching events that um, – hmm. I discussed at the beginning that created sure. the content for the book. So all of the content in the book is his, labors. his baby and his brainchild. Mm. <laughs> so. Well, we are, we are definitely thankful for that brother. And um, Tim Keller wrote the foreword. So that is always a really wonderful stamp of encouragement and approval. And so we're grateful for his efforts as well. Um, Hannah, one last thing, where can people keep in touch with you online where they can, where can they follow your work? or get more deeply engaged in what's happening in the Chinese church? Yeah. So um, I'm on social media. You can find me. Um, I think all my handles are Hannah FS Nation. But if you search for Hannah Nation, you'll find me. Um, you can. I also recommend following, it's called the Center for House Church Theology. Um, the social media handles are just House Church Theology. Um, that is a great place to keep abreast with books coming out. We also um, are doing digital downloads that have study guides and lovely friends like Karen Ellis have um, contributed responses to those. So if you're interested in helping or trying to bring um, just some of the Chinese perspective and Chinese theology into like a book club or a Um, a church Sunday school setting. Um, There are a ton of resources at the Center for House Church Theology. The website's just housechurchtheology.com. That's great. I love that. And, And I do think that we have so much to learn. I mean, we in the United States do have so many resources but nothing can replace the lived experience of our brothers and sisters who have walked through suffering Mm -hmm. and what they can teach us about what Christ has done in them and through them in the process. So Hannah, thank you for your time. Thank you for your labors on behalf of the Chinese church and for growing us and stretching us as a result of what um, you have been able to participate in over the years. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now.